All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James, I'm your host, and today is episode 70. Today's topic is one that I've been wanting to do for a long, long time. Before I dive into the content today, I wanted to take a minute to remind you to leave a review and subscribe to the show. It really does help more people find us, and I really appreciate it. I want to give a huge thanks to everyone who has taken time to do that. Today, we're going to explore the wild west of medication that pushed us to the 1906 Pure Food and Drugs Act and the formation of the FDA. These medications contained many common herbs, spices, medications, and were generally harmless. However, there were several that caused serious side effects and even death. So we'll explore the good, the bad, and the absurd, all wrapped up neatly into two episodes. So today we're going to talk about the history of patent medicines and what that means. And then next week, we're going to dive into the dangerous side of these patent medicines, how they led to the FDA, and in addition to that, where we're at today with patent medicines and which patent medicines have stood the test of time and are still around today. I'm sure you've heard the term snake oil salesman. However, Have you ever stopped to wonder how that term came to be? Snake oil salesmen got their name from Clark Stanley's snake oil liniment. It was mineral oil that had been mixed with various herbs and compounds, and it was marketed as a cure for a variety of joint and back pains. For good measure, Stanley thought he'd pitch his snake oil as providing instant relief, from frostbite, bruises, sore throat, and bug and animal bites. A well-known ad for the product said, good for everything a liniment ought to be good for. With claims like these, it's no wonder that Clark Stanley had a successful venture on his hands. He wasn't the first and he wasn't the last. However, his snake oil became a common term for medication that boasted outlandish and fraudulent claims, while doing little, if anything, of real benefit to the person using it. In 1916, Stanley's snake oil liniment was tested by the government's Bureau of Chemistry. We're going to go into that more next week on how that was formed. And this was simply a government agency that was a precursor to the Food and Drug Administration. It found to be, it found that the snake oil liniment was drastically overpriced and of limited value. It contained mineral oil, 1% fatty oil, capsaicin from chili peppers, that's what makes them spicy, turpentine, and camphor. Nowhere did it contain snake oil. Because of this, Stanley faced federal prosecution for distributing mineral oil in a fraudulent manner as snake oil. There was nothing involving snakes in his oil. Stanley pleaded no contest to the charges. The judge accepted his plea, and he was fined $20. In today's money, that would be around $470. He basically got off with nothing but a slap on the wrist. 
Snake oil is a prime example of a patent medicine. This was a concoction that was put together and had claims of tremendous benefit to those who would take it. And this is a topic that has come up again and again as I've researched for other episodes. A lot of soda that we know and love today started as a patent medicine. Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, Pepsi, 7-Up, Root Bear, all of these have a history in promising tremendous health benefits for nothing more than a sip of the product. Now, going back even further, patent medicine originated in England. The name originates from the letters of patent that were granted by the English crown. After patent medicine came to America, few producers actually sought patents for their concoction. As time went on, the term patent medicine began to describe any medicine that was sold over the counter. And they would use the term patent medicine because it sounded more legitimate. Early colonial life proved that no one could escape the reach and popularity of these early patent medicines. Turlington's Balsam of Life, Bateman's Pectoral Drops, and Hooper's Female Pills were very successful in early America. Some, like Bateman's Pectoral Drops, maintained popularity well into the 1900s, and the original patent for these drops was granted by King George I in 1726. Of course, it didn't take long for Americans to understand the vast potential and financial success that could come with development of patent medicines. And successful inventors enlisted the help of savvy marketers to get their products noticed by the public. Patent medicines were one of the first major product categories that the advertising industry promoted. Advertising often promoted these medications as a cure to multiple ailments and often without any proof or research backing uh, these claims. They emphasized exotic ingredients and were often endorsed by experts or well-known celebrities. This influx of medication showed that no disease was beyond a possible cure. So how did this craze start? The very first letters of patent given to an inventor of a secret remedy was issued during the late 17th century. And the patent that was issued ensured that the medicine maker had a monopoly over his particular formula. They could then market and sell that medication at will. But this goes beyond the 1600s. This goes beyond letters of patent. Since the beginning of time, people have been mixing stuff together and calling it a cure for various ailments. That's how medicine has evolved over time. But patent medicines took it to a whole new level, and the marketing behind them really solidified their place in history as a truly unique time for the medical professional. And this was really a time when anyone and their dog could come up with an idea or a concoction, claim it cured something, and sell it without penalty or even assuring that they were safe. So when did patent medicine really take off? (laughs) Many people consider the mid 
1800s to be the height of popularity for patent medicine. For every ailment you could find, there seemed to be someone waiting patiently and sometimes impatiently to sell you a cure for their, uh, of their own making. And as I mentioned, these cures were marketed heavily. Medicine shows were a popular avenue for getting the message out there. And these were similar to circus events where they would travel the country and put on various forms of entertainment. And in between sets, they'd peddle some miracle cure that everyone would be able to purchase after the show. Most shows existed to market their own patent medicine that they had developed. And these shows were popular well into the 1950s. And slowly they fizzled out as we got into the 1900s, the 1940s, the 1950s. And during the 50s, they were competing with television. And people started to view them as a relic of the past and stopped really giving them much attention. So let's dive in and talk about some of these various medicines that were popular in history. And some of these medications would be considered hard drugs by today's standards, and they were distributed freely before the dangers of addiction were well known. Before I dive into the truly absurd, I want to spend a minute on these. Opium. Opium was readily available as a painkiller. Opiates have strong anesthetic and sedative properties. Medicinal uses of opium were first outlined in ancient Greek medical texts dating back to 40 AD. McMunn's elixir of opium was developed in the 1830s by John B. McMunn of New York. He mixed it with alcohol and advertised the concoction as the perfect cure for nervous irritability. He also said it would help with rabies and tetanus, because why not? I think I'd agree with McMunn. Alcohol laced with opium would certainly cure most nervous irritability. In addition to being marketed as a painkiller, opium was marketed as a cure for all sorts of ailments. It was considered a proper treatment for children's coughs and colds and also was prescribed as a great way to keep fussy babies quiet. Another popular opiate-based medication was developed by a shoemaker. Yes, folks, you heard that right. This medication was not produced by a pharmacist or a chemist or a medical doctor. Nope. This was produced by a humble shoemaker. Perry Davis launched his opium-based cure for cholera and other infectious diseases. The label on his bottle boasted that the medicine was purely vegetable and that no family should be without it. Cocaine. One of the more popular episodes that I've done is on the history of Coca-Cola. And you'll recall from that episode that one of the more shocking ingredients when the drink first launched was coca leaves. It isn't really clear how much cocaine was in Coca-Cola when it initially launched. However, that didn't stop them from marketing it as a cure for a variety of illnesses. More on that next week. <laughs> cocaine found its way legally into many medications in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was a legal ingredient until 1914. You could pick up Allen's cocaine tablets for hay fever, throat troubles, or headache at 50 cents a box. 
Ernest Shackleton and Robert F. Scott also carried forced march, cocaine, and caffeine pills for endurance on their Antarctic expeditions. And that will definitely keep you alert and with it. Heroin. Similar to opium and cocaine, heroin found its way into early medication. In the late 1800s, there were frequent attempts at developing a medication that could have the pain-numbing effects of morphine, but be less addictive. Heroin was discovered and quickly found its way into a number of cough syrups, of all things. (laughs) They were marketed as treating back pain and insomnia, as well as coughs. Unfortunately, heroin is around two times more potent than morphine itself. From 1898 to 1910, these cough syrups were marketed as a non-addictive morphine substitute and quickly became the cause of one of the highest addiction rates among users. Methamphetamine. Methamphetamine was first synthesized by a Japanese chemist in 1893. Meth was used to treat a variety of problems such as narcolepsy and asthma. Methedrine was marketed as a weight loss drug. It promised help for those who eat too much and were also depressed. They said that methedrine dispels abnormal craving for food while slightly elevating the mood. Now that we have the hard drugs out of the way, let's move to the truly absurd treatments. And these ones just make me laugh. So smoking. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, smoking was used as a medication. Various brands of cigarettes would mark would market their cigarettes as a cure for all variety of illnesses. One brand really stood out to me. Dr. Batty's For Your Health Asthma Cigarettes. Once you get past that mouthful, you start to question their health claims a little bit. The promise here was that they effectively treat hay fever, foul breath, all diseases of the throat, canker sores, head colds, and bronchial irritations. And most shocking of all, they even went as far to say it was an effective treatment for asthma, which is really funny because cigarettes cause all of those things that they claim in this, for this brand that they're curing. I can't make this up, people. This is real. This is what was happening in the 1700s and the 1800s. At least they had enough sense (laughs) to state on each box that the cigarettes weren't recommended for children under six. Tapeworms. This next one has me shaking my head a little, and mostly because it's a practice that's still in use today. A great ad from the mid-1800s targeted people trying to lose weight. It said, eat, 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 and always stay thin. No diet, no baths, no exercise. Fat, the enemy that is shortening your life, banished. How? With sanitized tapeworms that are easy to swallow. (laughs) The ad also makes sure to clarify that there are no ill effects and no danger. Guaranteed harmless. So this idea is straightforward. Get a tapeworm egg, swallow it, and watch the pounds melt away. The parasite will live in your intestine and ingest whatever you eat. However, this practice has been proven to be dangerous and sometimes deadly. No thanks. 
This next one has a little bit of a morbid tone to it. Corpse medicine. Corpse medicine is something that was used for hundreds of years up until the 1890s. It was common to use the human body as an ingredient in medicine. Liver was prescribed to those suffering from epilepsy, and more common parts used in different medications were blood, fat, bone, and flesh. One of the most popular corpse remedies was made from Egyptian mummies. Parts of mummified remains were smuggled out of Egypt and ground into powder. These were popular treatments for epilepsy, bruising, and hemorrhaging. Blood. This is one of the craziest and disturbing advertisements I have ever seen. Vampires rejoice. You're going to love this one. So this medicine is for you. In 1890, the Bovine Company in Chicago launched a medication called Bovinine or Bovinine. Their ad showed a woman with her eyes closed with a small glass of red liquid beside her. The sales pitch on the ad said, Look on me in my lassitude reclining, my my nerveless body languid, pale and lean. Now hold me up to where the light is shining and mark the magic power of bovinine. When the advertisement was held up to the light, eyes her eyes would open and a ghostly steer, cow, bull appears outside her window with the words, "My life was saved by bovinine." This was a delicious mixture of beef blood, glycerin, and salt. <laughs> and the Delicious part of that is sarcasm in case you didn't pick it up. Sometimes that doesn't come through in a podcast. Dr. Morse's Indian root pills. It was often believed that impure blood was the root of all diseases. So most of these patent medicines claimed that, among other things, they would purify your blood. These pills were no different. They claimed to contain herbal ingredients that would help cleanse the blood. Dr. Williams' Pink Pills for Pale People. (laughs) That's a tongue twister if I've heard one. I included this one largely because of the name. I love the name. (laughs) I think it's hilarious. It has nothing to do with the medication. Uh, This was a medication that contained ferrous sulfate and magnesium sulfate. It was produced by Dr. Williams Medicine Company. They claimed that this was a cure for chorea, which is an involuntary movement disorder. It was referenced frequently in the newspaper headlines as St. Vitus Dance. The advertising for this one was great. (laughs) One ad said, Our son Willard was absolutely helpless. His lower limbs were paralyzed, and when we used electricity, he could not feel it below his hips. Finally, my mother, who lives in Canada, wrote advertising the use of Dr. Williams' pink pills for pale people, and I bought some. This was when our boy had been on the stretcher for an entire year and helpless for nine months. In weeks after taking the pills, we noted signs of vitality in his legs, and in four months, he was able to go to school. It was nothing else in the world that saved the boy than Dr. Williams' pink pills for pale people. And that was quite the testimonial. These pills were popular. They were sold across the world in 82 countries and were finally pulled from the market in 1970. So they had some good longevity. Bile beans. These were a laxative and tonic that were first marketed in the 1890s. They supposedly contained substances extracted from an unknown vegetable source by a fictitious chemist 
known as Charles Ford. When they first hit the market, they were advertised as Charles Ford's bile beans for biliousness. They claimed to disperse unwanted fat and to purify and enrich the blood. The manufacturer claimed that this medicine was based on a vegetable source known only to Aboriginal Australians. However, the actual ingredients were cascara, rhubarb, licorice, and menthol, all of which were common ingredients you'd find in any pharmacy at the time. These bile beans were sold until eight, until 1980. Hamlin's Wizard Oil. <laughs> Again, another classic name. This is one of the classic patent medicines. It was sold as a cure-all under the slogan, There is no sore, it will not heal, no pain, it will not subdue. It was first produced in 1861 by uh, John Austin Hamlin and his brother Lysander Butler Hamlin in Chicago. And John Austin Hamlin is a former magician. So again, not a chemist, not a pharmacist, not a medical doctor, not even a shoemaker, but a magician. <laughs> it was mainly sold and used as a liniment for rheumatic pain and sore muscles. However, it was also advertised as a treatment for pneumonia, cancer, diphtheria, earache, toothache, headache, and hydrophobia. So for all of you afraid of water, this one's for you. This oil was so full of magic and wizardry that it not only worked on humans, but it also worked on horses and cattle. One ad went so far as to show an elephant drinking the bottle. The oil was made of 50 to 70% alcohol along with camphor, ammonia, chloroform, sassafras, cloves, and turpentine. It was recommended to be used internally as well as topically. In 1916, Lysander's son, who was managing the firm, was fined $200, again under that 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, for saying their oil could check the growth and permanently kill cancer. So more on the 1906 Act next week. <laughs> this one was great. The Seven Sutherland Sisters Hair Grower. <laughs> so for those of you that have never heard of the Seven Sutherland Sisters, they were a singing group, which included the seven daughters of Fletcher and Mary Sutherland of Lockport, New York. They were popular from the early 1880s to the early 1900s. Their distinguishing feature as a group was their ridiculously long hair. They all had long hair. This led them to create a successful line of hair and scalp products. Why not? <laughs> The most popular was the Seven Sutherland Sisters Hair Grower, which contained witch hazel and bay rum, along with traces of hydrochloric acid, salt, and magnesium. This was a, an incredibly popular uh, hair tonic. They expanded their line to also include a scalp cleanser, brushes, and combs. Another interesting fact about their hair, the collective length of their hair was over 37 feet. So they knew a thing or two about hair care. This one is the perfect one to end on and segue into next week's episode, Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup. What a beautiful name for a soothing syrup. Makes me feel good inside. 
This was a medication that was produced in 1845 in Bangor, Maine. It consisted of morphine, sulfate, sodium carbonate, spirits, funiculi, and aqua ammonia. They claimed that it would soothe any human or animal. It effectively helped restless infants and small children, especially for teething. I'd imagine giving a child morphine while teething would definitely soothe and calm them down. That wraps up today's show. Next week, we're going to do part two on patent medicines and how the Wild West of medicine led to the formation of the FDA. You'll learn about how when these medicines go wrong, they go really wrong. So if you thought some of these that we talked about today were ridiculous and borderline dangerous, wait until you hear the list I have for you next week. As always, thanks for finding the show and listening. If you want to explore past episodes and other food history tidbits as well as recipes, you can check out my website, toastykettle.com. Until next week.